1: In the summer of 2018, Caitlin received a Facebook message from a local web sleuth named Leslie, who had a loose connection to Rachel. Her cousin attended middle and high school with Rachel, and his ex girlfriend was one of Rachel's friends. Leslie encouraged Caitlin to start looking into her mother's case. The two of them started reviewing the case file, sharing theories, trying to drum up leads on the internet, and even did a podcast. Although they discussed the concept that Rachel could have been the victim of a serial killer, or that Daniel Wilson, cleared by DNA, had worked with an accomplice, Caitlin remained convinced that her mother's killer was someone Rachel had known. She contacted the Akron Police Department and requested a status update on the case, and was told that they had a complete male DNA profile. Her inquiries helped prompt a familial DNA search of CODIS using the unknown suspect's DNA. Rachel's was one of just three Ohio cases selected by the BCI for familial DNA testing in 2018. Unfortunately, a BCI lab report in March of 2019 stated that no male relatives were located in the database. It was time for forensic genealogy. Detective Paceilich knew that he had ample DNA to work with, so he pushed for funding to hire Parabon nanolabs to do the genealogy. Once he obtained approval to spend a limited number of funds, a SNP profile was prepared by Okesigen using sperm fraction sample from Rachel's vaginal swabs. It was provided to Parabon in March of 2019, and Parabon uploaded the sample and unfortunately found only a small number of low-level matches. Their report to the Akron PD indicated that the case did not meet their threshold for proceeding with the genealogy analysis. In other words, based on the matches they were seeing, It wasn't a promising case and would cost the Akron Police Department a lot for the analysis to be done without guaranteed results. So in July of 2019, Detective Pashailich decided to go forward with Advanced DNA, an Ohio-based investigative genetic genealogy company founded by Amanda Reno and Cheryl Hester. A BCI analyst named Lisa Savage uploaded the SNP profile from Rachel's killer into Family Tree DNA and then provided the login information to Cheryl and Amanda. They also uploaded the kit to GEDmatch using the pseudonym James, Detective Bashilich's first name. Then the genealogists got to work. First, the unsub's admixture. This would prove important for the genealogist's subsequent analysis. This is a quote from the Advanced DNA Report, the ethnicity estimation tools leveraged at both GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA estimate the DNA sample provided to belong to a Caucasian male of European ancestry. The ethnicity results from Family Tree DNA seem to indicate a strong connection to southern Europe and countries such as Croatia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greece, or Italy. End quote. In Family Tree DNA, the pseudonym used for the UNSUB's DNA profile was Roy Talmadge. Once Roy's profile was loaded into the database, the genealogist saw that the top DNA relatives shared about 112 centimorgans with the suspect, about the second to third cousin range. The next seven matches were all well below 100 centimorgans. It wasn't much, and Amanda Reno told me that this case was very complex and required many, many hours of challenging work. No reference testing was done in this case, but upon the recommendation of the genealogists, The investigators located two suspected relatives of the unknown subject who had already tested using commercial DNA testing sites. Both of these people were willing to upload their DNA profiles to the open source databases so the genealogists could see the relationships. This from a later opposition to a motion to suppress the DNA evidence taken directly from Advanced DNA's report, quote, upon building the family tree of the closest DNA matches It was determined that there would be a connection to the Mauts and possibly Offenbacher line, as there were many matches connecting to these families. Both family groups are extensive, with each generation commonly having more than five children. These families settled in Morgan, Muskingum, and Licking counties in Ohio. At least one of the family lines migrated up to Summit County, Ohio. End quote. Some of the complicating factors Ms. Reno mentioned included that two women in the Mautz family had married cousins from the Offenbacher family, leading to double relationships. Another was that the genealogists could see virtually no matches on one entire side of the suspect's tree. All the visible DNA relatives were related to one another and rooted in Ohio. But finally, after months of work, everything clicked. After trying in vain to locate any Offenbacher Mouts descendants who were located in Summit County where Akron is, rather than in Morgan, Muskingum, and Licking Counties, they finally located a death record for an Offenbacher and Mouts descendant who died in Summit County in 2001. On February 3, 2020, Cheryl Hester gave the Akron investigators the names of three brothers, last name Rees. Their paternal grandmother's maiden name was Offenbacher, and their father's side, the Rees family, was deeply rooted in, Mor- in Morgan, Muskingum, and Licking Counties, Ohio. Their mother's side of the family had roots in Serbia. These were the three sons born to Harry Albert Rees and Ruzika Rose Mary Markov. The genealogists had been able to use the matches they had to home in on the Mouts and Offenbacher descendants, one branch of which was the Rees family they knew that the other side of the suspect's tree was very underrepresented in terms of visible matches. But in looking at the Reese family, they noted that Harry Reese had died in Summit County and his wife, Rose Markoff Reese's parents, had immigrated from Eastern Europe. From the report, quote, the recent immigration from these regions would be the reason we have found no DNA matches on those lines and would also align with the ethnicity estimate from family tree DNA, end quote. In other words, once they had found the marriage between Harry Reese and Rose Markov, everything came together. The top DNA relative they had, the one who shared 112 centimorgans with the suspect, turned out to be related to the three Reese sons in two ways. She was a third cousin once removed on the Mounts line, and a fourth cousin once removed on the Offenbacher line. The backstory on the Reese family was as follows. Ruzika Rose Mary Markov was born in Akron, Ohio to Peter and Anna Markov. Peter was born in Serbia in 1875. Anna Nechikov was born in Hungary in 1886. The two immigrated to Ohio and settled there and had Rose and her six siblings. Rose's ancestry was Serbian and Hungarian, just as the unsub's admixture indicated. She lived in Goodyear Heights her whole life and worked for Goodyear Aerospace and then as a lunch lady and PTA president for the Akron Public Schools. Rose gave birth to the three Reese brothers with her husband, Harry Reese. He served in the Korean War and then worked at Goodyear Tire and Rubber for 38 years. Harry's family had lived in Ohio for generations. His mother's maiden name was Lucy B. Offenbacher, one of the predominant surnames of DNA relatives located by the genealogist in Family Tree DNA. Her grandmother and aunt were born with the surname Mouts. Harry had three brothers, but he was the only one who married a woman with recent European heritage, helping the genealogist home in on his branch of the family tree. As I said, it was complicated. But now, the investigative work was easy. As advanced DNA reported to Detective Pashilich, Harry and Rose had three sons. The three Reese brothers had all been raised in Akron. As Detective Pashilich told Cleveland.com, quote, They, Advanced DNA, are not telling us who that person is. They just help direct us to help us understand who their family might be. And we have to work to prove or disprove that information, just like any lead. Without them, we wouldn't have known who this person was. It's true that Advanced DNA did not tell Detective Pashilich which Rees brother was their suspect. But their report pointed out that one of them had received a traffic ticket on January 25, 1990, a year before Rachel's murder, that listed an address at a Faust Avenue home situated literally abutting the spot where Rachel was last seen in the Dairy Mart parking lot. The address was also less than a mile from where Rachel's body was discovered. Further, that same brother had been charged in 1993 with assault. His name was Daniel Reese, and he was living in Barberton, Ohio, a suburb of Akron. Detective Pashilich had never heard the name Reese. That surname was not anywhere in the Rachel Johnson case file. But the investigative lead provided by Advanced DNA was by far the best lead they had, so they were all in. On February 19, 2020, Detectives Guy Sheffield and Pashilich knew that it was a city trash collection day in Daniel Reese's Barberton neighborhood. They parked outside his home in the 200 block of East Lake Avenue and observed Reese come outside and deposit a bag of what appeared to be household trash in a trash can on the sidewalk. They collected the bag and brought it back to the Akron Police Department. Collected from the trash bag were 13 cans of light beer, two 16-ounce plastic Dr. Pepper bottles, three plastic crystal water bottles, and an Ohio Edison bill and a Dominion Energy bill, both addressed to Daniel Reese. They submitted five of the beer cans to the BCI for DNA testing that same day. Six days later, the detective collected trash left in a trash can outside a home on Flint Avenue in Akron. This was the home of Daniel Reese's Uncle William. Out of the trash bags, the detectives collected two Band-Aid-type items, miscellaneous white tissues, three plastic water bottles, and two plastic Coke bottles. They were sent to the Akron Police Department property room and then to the lab for Y-DNA testing. The investigators knew that a Y-DNA sample from a male in the Rees family would dictate whether they were looking in the right place. However, they didn't even have time to get these items tested because on February 28, 2020, the detectives learned that there was only a single unknown male DNA profile obtained from all five of the beer cans submitted to the BCI from the Daniel Reese trash grab in Barberton. This profile was from a male and matched the unknown male profile obtained from the vaginal swabs and pubic hair clippings from Rachel Johnson. It was him. The DNA of only one man was inside and on Rachel as she lay burning in the street, and that man was Daniel Reese. On March 2, 2020, Lieutenant Widen and Detective Pesailich went to the home of Daniel Rees and knocked on the door. Their goal was to obtain a direct DNA sample, so they wouldn't have to rely on the trash-grab DNA, always of uncertain origin, for an arrest. Rees wasn't home the first time they tried at 9.05 a.m., so they went back in the afternoon at 4.45. They noted that his vehicle was parked in the driveway this time. Rees answered the door. This is all taken from Detective Pashailich's summary of the interview, which was recorded on Bodycam. We told him we wanted to talk about an old case, Rachel Johnson. The anniversary date of her murder was coming up. Quote, I told him that we were looking up old addresses and asked him if he used to live on Faust. Dan stated, gosh, I don't remember. I stated to him that there was a dairy mart there and then he stated that he did remember living there. They asked Dan if he knew Rachel, and he said he had. He said, quote, I knew her from bars. I used to work with her sister. He denied ever dating her or going out with her. Detective Pashilich specifically asked Dan if he ever had sex with Rachel, and he replied, no. Gotcha. Other than confessing, this was the next best thing, because the DNA proved he was lying and had something to hide. Then they showed him a picture of Rachel, and he said, She got raped and murdered up by there. Yeah, I remember that. The detectives asked Reese what he was doing back in the 90s, and he said he was working in the area as a printer. Printing was a lifelong career for him. Reese volunteered that he'd lived across the street from Thomas and Caitlin after Rachel's murder, and Caitlin went to school with Reese's son. He said they became family friends and hung out together for years. Reese said, that was fucked up what happened to Rachel. The detectives again asked whether Reese had ever gone out with Rachel or dated her or had sex with her or anything, and he again said no. They then asked him if he had any involvement in her murder, and he said no. This from the report, quote, I asked Dan if he would be willing to give me a DNA sample, and he replied, quote, I don't know about that because, now, like, nowadays, just nowadays, people are getting incriminated on DNA things. Well, he's not the most articulate, but he was smart enough to know that his DNA could potentially be used against him. At this point, Reese desperately tried to get the detectives off his back by telling them that he thought they should go talk to Thomas and let him know that they were talking to him, Reese. Because their families are tight, he said. Quote, Dan stated that their families go back five generations. Dan told me he remembers taking Caitlin to school. Reeves said that what he had heard about the night was that Rachel was at a bar with Tom's brother Mark and his wife. He learned about the murder when his brother called him and told him about it. He said he was at his mom's house when his brother called on the phone. The detective brought up that Rachel got out of the car she was in after getting a flat tire, and Dan responded, quote, Now that you bring that up, I remember I was, I had my kid and he was like three years old and we were at my mom's house because my kid had real bad flu and I was a single parent too, just like practically everybody. So notice that Reese made sure to emphasize that he was at his mom's house with other people that night, not at his own house situated right at the abduction site. They asked him if anyone else was living at the house on Faust at the time, and he said there were others because the house had three apartments, the downstairs, the middle, and the top floor. He said a woman he knew named Renee D. and her girlfriend lived on the first floor. A guy who he didn't know the name of lived on the second floor, and he, Dan, lived on the top floor. Before ending the interview, Reeves stated, quote, Renee D. will vouch where I was that night. We were real close, end quote. This is another quote from the report. Dan denied being at any of the bars that Rachel was at on the night in question. He stated that he was with his child. Quote, Renee will tell you that. End quote. Then the detectives asked Reese for his cell phone number and he readily supplied it. They then asked him again if he would give a DNA sample, that it was totally up to him. He replied, quote, I don't know, man. You know, I just don't know at this time. No. End quote. Detective Peshilich said, I told him I might call him back later to see if he changed his mind. They told him they were going back and talking to other people who were in the area at the time, and he replied, that's cool. The detectives left and started the process of obtaining a search warrant for Daniel Reese's DNA. That took some time, with an affidavit needing to be written up and whatnot. They formulated a plan whereby they would pull Reese over on his way to work and execute the warrant and swab him on the spot. It was a good plan, except that Reese skipped town. They drove by his house again and again and never saw his car. He was gone. On March 11, 2020, Detective Prasilich received a message from Detective Kevin Davis of the Akron Police Department. Davis told Detective Prasilich that a man named Tim had called and wanted Pashilich to call him back ASAP. He said he was scared for his life. Tim's last name was Reese. He was Daniel's brother. Detective Pashilich called Tim, who asked if he was investigating Daniel Reese. The detective beat around the bush, saying they had spoken to Daniel Reese in connection with an unsolved homicide. And then Tim dropped a bombshell. He said that Daniel Reese was in Akron City Hospital after trying to take his own life, and that he had confessed. Detective Pashilich and Lieutenant Dave Widden went to Tim's house. Tim told them that he was estranged from his brother Daniel, and they hadn't spoken in nearly 13 years. There was a lot of acrimony among the three siblings over their parents' estate and other lingering resentments. Tim said that he was surprised when on the Wednesday of last week he got a text message from a woman named Linda Mann, an ex of Daniel's. Linda told him that his brother Daniel wanted to reconcile with him. Tim ignored the message, but received another one a few hours later saying that Daniel really wanted to talk to him. Tim tried to get Daniel on the phone on Thursday and Friday, but was unsuccessful at reaching him. Then Daniel called him. It was unclear whether this was Thursday night or Friday night. Daniel was crying, saying he wanted to make things right with his brother. Daniel said he had brain cancer and had had a stroke. He said he was in a hotel in Tennessee on his way to Florida. The next morning, Daniel didn't call, but Linda did. She told Tim that Daniel was in the hospital after a suicide attempt in a Springfield Township Econo Lodge. Daniel had apparently flipped out after the Akron detectives went to his house asking for DNA. Linda said Daniel grabbed a bag of clothes and his survival kit and booked out of town. He checked into the Econo Lodge in Springfield under a fake name, using an ID he had stolen from a buddy named Scott, whose house he had been hiding out at in the previous days. On the night of March 6th to 7th, Daniel had taken some sleeping pills and drank some vodka while at the motel. He had a gun with him and told Linda he was going to shoot himself. Linda had called a suicide hotline and then police out of fear that Dan would harm himself because he told her vaguely, quote, I can't do it no longer. I'm a murderer. He made reference to what he did being in the news after he was dead. Springfield police traced Reese's cell phone to the Econo Lodge Hotel on South Arlington Road. When officers arrived, they found Reese passed out in the motel room, with prescription drugs and vodka in his system and a handgun nearby. They checked him into Akron City Hospital. Tim told the detectives he had gone to the hospital early on Saturday morning to see his brother. Daniel whispered into his ear, I did it, I did it. Tim withdrew and asked, did what? And Daniel replied, Rachel, I fucking killed her. Tim told Detective Vashilich that Daniel told him he stabbed Rachel and cut her up and he was mumbling some other things about burning her body. He said the whole thing went down at his apartment, which was near the Dairy Mart at the corner of Dan Street and Glenwood. Tim recounted to the detectives what Daniel had told him. He had only gotten bits and pieces, but he gathered that Rachel was at Daniel's apartment that night. They got into a big fight. Daniel started to strangle her and things got out of hand. Next thing he knew... He was putting her body in the trunk and setting her on fire on Weller Avenue. Before deciding to go to the police, Tim visited Daniel in the hospital again on Tuesday, March 10th. Daniel was unhappy because there was a staff suicide watch nurse technician in the room, so he had to whisper so she wouldn't hear. He said to Tim, I just need to get out of here. He leaned over and said, I can't fucking go to prison. Daniel whispered, as far as they know, they don't know nothing. I didn't give them no swab or nothing. So now Tim had heard Daniel confess to murdering someone named Rachel. He wanted nothing to do with this, so he called the Akron Police Department. Tim told Detective Pashailich that his brother Daniel was a, quote, evil, mythological, crazy motherfucker. Because of this ongoing vitriol toward his brother and his brother's twisted confession to a horrific murder, Tim told the detectives that he knew they were seeking Reese's DNA and that he wouldn't give it to them. Tim told them he was willing to give them a sample of his own DNA the detective swabbed him and submitted the buckle swabs to the property room and the lab. Based on the second-hand confession, Detective Lieutenant Widden and Detective Pashailich agreed with the prosecuting attorney that they would file aggravated murder charges against Daniel Reese. Before the arrest, Detective Lieutenant Widden and Detective Pashailich had the task of sitting down with the family of Rachel Johnson. They went to see Caitlin and Rachel's mother, Gail, and some others, and informed them of an imminent arrest of a man named Daniel Reese for Rachel's murder. The family was horrified. They told the detectives that Thomas' family and the Reese boys all grew up together. It was likely that Rachel knew Daniel Reese. After Rachel's murder, Reese had become close with Thomas and Caitlin. And Caitlin had gone to school with Tim Reese's daughter as well. The two families were connected the whole time. Rachel's mom, Gail, later spoke with the Akron Beacon Journal. She said she had resigned herself to never knowing who killed her daughter. She admitted that she had always dreaded finding out because she was afraid of who it might be. Quote, but now that I do, I'm glad because I don't have to dread this coming up. After talking with the family, the investigators went to the hospital to put cuffs on Reese. This was on March 11th. They informed him that they were placing him under arrest and they read him his rights. He refused to make any statements without an attorney but Detective Pashilich later testified that he was teary-eyed and resigned. They then learned from the hospital staff that Reese was being released and was able to be transported to the Summit County Jail, so they gladly assisted with the transport. Reese was booked on aggravated murder charges and placed in a cell.
0: On March 12,
1: 2020, the detectives executed a search warrant on Daniel Reese for a known DNA standard. Buckle swabs were taken from him at the Summit County Jail and submitted to the BCI for DNA testing. Then, Detective Lieutenant Whidden and Detective Pashilich went to sit down with Linda Mann. She was the one who had called the suicide hotline, which resulted in police finding Reese at the motel. Linda said that she had dated Daniel Reese starting pretty soon after Rachel's murder. She confirmed that indeed, he lived in the top-floor apartment of the Faust Avenue house abutting the Dairy Mart parking lot. She had been there with him. After they broke up, they had stayed in touch but had not spoken in about a year when, on March 5th, he showed up at her house. He told her that he had terminal cancer and was planning to take his own life. But he didn't yet know how he was going to do it. This was a total lie, by the way. Reese wanted to know if Linda could get his brother Tim's phone number for him. She said that she would text Tim. Then Reese told her he had made out his last will and testament, and he left. The next day, he called Linda for Tim's phone number, and she gave it to him. Then he called her for the last time on March 6th at 11.38 p.m. He was speaking as if he intended imminently to harm himself. He told her that his neighbors, Brett and Teresa, had spare keys to his house. He told her that his friend Scott had his $1,500 in cash and also a set of keys to his house. Linda started writing down some of the things that he told her on the phone because she knew that he was preparing to take his own life. He told her that he was taking this drastic step because the cops had come to his house and asked for a DNA test, and he didn't want to give DNA because 30 years ago he had killed someone. He didn't tell her who it was, but it was a woman. He told her this had happened right around the time period when they first met. Now detectives knew that Reese had confessed to two people, and even if he refused to confess to them they had him dead to rights. A search warrant signed by Judge McKinney was executed at Daniel Reese's home on Eastlake Avenue in Barberton on March 13, 2020. Detective Lieutenant Whitten, Detective Sergeant Kelly, Detective Sabol, and Detective Pashilich all executed the warrant and collected several photos, a couple of cell phones, miscellaneous documents, and a piece of braided hair. They also obtained photos from the Springfield Township Police Department of messages left behind by Daniel Reese on the mirror and headboard at the O'Connell Lodge Motel on March 7th. Reese had written in large, scrawling handwriting on a full-length mirror in the O'Connell Lodge the word Red Room in a universally recognized reference to the movie The Shining. I shit you not. They also collected the items Reese had left behind in the hotel room, a Taurus 9mm handgun with magazine and rounds, two boxes of ammunition, a gun case and miscellaneous papers and a notebook containing messages like God, please forgive me, signed Daniel, and a list of contact numbers with Tell Them All I'm Sorry. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, a few notes left by Daniel featured song lyrics, including Got a good reason for taking the easy way out, a song from the Beatles. As Assistant Prosecutor Jonathan Balmoral said, it was some bizarre stuff. Later on the same day, March 13th, they received a call from the BCI lab which reported that the male DNA profile from the vaginal swab stick and swab from the pubic hair standard collected from the autopsy of Rachel Johnson was consistent with Daniel Reese. The estimated frequency of occurrence of the DNA profile was rarer than one in one trillion unrelated individuals. In other words, it was 100% certain that it was Daniel Reese's semen left on Rachel. So who is Reese? Daniel Reese was born on January 19, 1963, to parents Harry Albert Reese and Ruzika Markov Reese. He grew up in Akron and attended East High School with Thomas P's family. His brother Tim was in Thomas's brother Mark's graduating class. As Advanced DNA's report pointed out, quote, A reasonable assumption can be made that the Reese family and P. family, Thomas P.'s family, knew each other. Well, that proved to be the case, as Reese's family and Thomas's family verified. They all lived in the same neighborhood, and so did Rachel. In 1991, the year Rachel was killed, Reese was living in the top floor of a three story house that had been converted into apartments. It was situated in the 500 block of Faust Avenue, abutting the Dairy Mart parking lot Rachel was last seen walking through. Detectives found a traffic citation. For speeding, he received a year before Rachel's death, on which he listed his home address, and Linda, his ex, confirmed that he lived there. That apartment was .9 miles from the site where he set Rachel's body on fire. Reese got married to a wife I'm not naming in 1984, and they had a son. They divorced in 1989. Reese worked his entire life in the printing industry. He was 57 years old when he was arrested. A grand jury was held on March 18, 2020. Reese was indicted for felony murder for Rachel's murder and aggravated murder for the rape of Rachel. Ohio has the death penalty, and prosecutors decided to go for it. He pleaded not guilty at his arraignment. His bond was set at $1 million. Reese's defense attorneys, Joe Gorman and Eric Jones, moved to throw out Reese's statement to investigators in which he admitted knowing Rachel but denied ever having sex with her. They claimed that the detectives should have read Reese's Miranda warnings before talking to him. They also moved to throw out the DNA evidence obtained from items collected from his garbage and the genealogy research. Gorman and Jones argued that law enforcement should have obtained a search warrant to extract DNA from the items from Reese's trash and before advanced DNA started its analysis, because there should be a DNA exception to the abandonment doctrine. We've heard this before, with the defense arguing that the extraction of a DNA profile from abandoned material violates the defendant's Fourth Amendment rights against searches and seizures. As an aside, this was the first time a forensic genealogy case had made it to trial in Summit County. As the Akron Beacon Journal pointed out, Forensic genealogy was used to identify James Zastonic as the slayer of Barbie Blatnick in Cuyahoga Falls, but Zastonic died before he made it to trial. I covered that case in an earlier episode. This one was the first one in which the defendant was going to make it to trial. A hearing was held on the defense motions. Assistant prosecuting attorney John Baumill argued that under the law, no warrant was required. Reese had no expectation of privacy in his trash on the curb, as held in numerous precedents around the country and by the U.S. Supreme Court in California versus Greenwood, in which the ruling stated that, quote, having deposited their garbage for the express purpose of having strangers take it, respondent could have had no reasonable expectation of privacy in the inculpatory items that they discarded, end quote. As for whether the genealogical research was in some manner an unconstitutional search and seizure, Balmell argued that the genealogy provided merely a lead. He said at the hearing on the matter, quote, the defendant does not have an expectation of privacy in the results and conclusions of advanced DNA, end quote. He pointed out in his defense brief that the genealogy was performed using open source databases, and quote, advanced DNA never produced defendant's DNA profile and never possessed it. Therefore, nothing of the defendant's was searched or seized, end quote. Amanda Reno testified at the hearing about the information she gleaned from the upload of the unknown suspect's SNP profile into Family Tree and GEDmatch. Per the Akron Beacon Journal, quote, Reno said they used public records to create family trees to narrow down potential suspects. Reno said this process identified Reese and his brothers as potential suspects, end quote. She told the judge that the lead provided by Advanced DNA was no different than a tip called in by a neighbor or other witness. This is a commonly cited analogy, but of course, we all know that the basis for leads provided by forensic genealogy are grounded in science and aren't influenced by faulty eyesight or access to grind as witness statements or neighbor tips may be. In other words, they are substantially more reliable than the average tip. Detective Shailich testified that he focused on Daniel among the three Reese brothers because he quickly learned, after researching him, that Reese lived right where Rachel was last seen, and he was friends with her family. He knew he didn't need a warrant to collect Reese's trash based on case law. He also knew he didn't need to administer Miranda warnings to Reese since he wasn't under arrest. Reese's recorded statements to the detectives were also played at the
0: hearing. While
1: her decision on all these matters was pending, the original Judge Joy Malik Altfield said she would recuse herself after it emerged that she had hired a man as a magistrate who had formerly served as an assistant prosecutor on Reza's case. It was one of those things that would probably really never be an issue, but even the appearance of a conflict must be avoided so as not to jeopardize the proceedings or give rise to an appeal. Judge Susan Baker Ross took over two years in in February, 2023. This all delayed the trial somewhat. And in May 2023, Judge Ross ruled against the defense on the suppression issues. So they sought a plea agreement. The Johnson family was amenable in order to avoid a trial and having everything that Rachel went through rehashed. The defense tried to depict this move as a charitable one. From WBNS, quote, Defense attorney Joe Gorman said Reese isn't the same person he was three decades ago and didn't want the family to have to go through a trial. He also said it's likely his client, who will be 90 when he first comes up for parole, won't leave prison. This is a life sentence, Gorman said. He understands that walking in here. Reese pleaded guilty on July 28, 2023. As part of the plea agreement, the underlying offense constituting aggravated murder was changed from rape to kidnapping in order to constitute a less serious offense. Rachel's family members were permitted to deliver victims' impact statements at Reese's sentencing. They were pretty powerful. Caitlin, Rachel's daughter, tearfully addressed her mother's killer, demanding that he look at her. She said, I don't know what she smelled like. I don't know what her hugs were like. I don't know what it's like to have a mom. Why would you stay across the street from me? Why would you steal my life? Was it guilt? What was that? I can't understand. I know you, but I don't know her. What kind of hate did you have for her to make you do that? I just wish you'd answer that. Rachel's brother, Larry Jr., said he would have preferred a trial and a death sentence. I want you dead, he told Reese. Things were especially poignant for Rachel's little sister, Layla. She had been only 13 when Rachel was killed, but as an adult, she worked closely with Reese for more than three years. He had been her favorite co-worker, and the two shared many lunches together at the same printing company. The whole time, Reese harbored the dreadful secret that he was the one who had taken her mother from her. In her victim's impact statement, Layla said, quote, He was enjoying getting away with murder. To know someone's a monster is one thing. To find out you've been on a coffee break with one is another thing entirely. She addressed Reese sharply, saying, How dare you? You're an abomination and a coward. Rachel's father, Larry Johnson, wore his fury and grief on his face as he struggled through his remarks. It never ends, he said. They say closure. What the hell is closure? I ask that you, Your Honor, give him what he deserves, please. I'd like to see him spend a lifetime in prison. Unlike his granddaughter, Caitlin, Larry demanded that Reese not look at him. When Reese did, Larry took a step toward Reese and deputies placed themselves between the two men. From Fox 8, quote, Don't even look at me, you son of a bitch, Johnson said, lunging at Reese. It's not worth it, said a woman, desperately clinging onto the devastated father's arm. It's not worth it. Then it was Reese's turn. He had lost a dramatic amount of weight since his arrest, and he looked somber and old. Everything these people are saying is true. I am a monster, said Reese. The crime I did was horrendous, but it was even worse that I was right in front of their face all this time and acting like I didn't do this. Reporters in the courtroom said that Reese appeared to be close to crying, but I imagine that they were crocodile tears he was shedding, if any. Judge Ross gave the Johnson family some gentle advice as she pronounced sentence on Reese. She said, That anger and hate in the heart, it does eat you alive from the inside. When you forgive, it's not saying what the person did was okay, it's saying you will not let it rule your heart. With that, she sentenced Reese to the punishment called for by the plea deal life in prison, with parole eligibility after 30 years. It was the harshest penalty provided for by law in Ohio, other than the death penalty at the time Rachel was killed. Daniel Reese had never been a suspect in the murder of Rachel Johnson. He had never even been interviewed. He was too remote a connection, a local guy who went to school with Rachel and Thomas and their families, someone never mentioned by her family or friends, to have made the list of possible's. He's a ghost in the investigation, Detective Pashilich told the Beacon Journal. He's never anywhere in it. He's like a chameleon. Nobody, including us, had any clue he's the person. It was frustrating to no end that Reese had been hiding in plain sight for decades, Detective Pashilich said. In 1991, the year he killed Rachel, Reese had a minimal record that would have attracted him to investigators. He was charged with and found guilty of aggravating menacing in 1989. He pleaded no contest, his mother paid his fine, and he received a suspended sentence. But he did go on to have law enforcement contact after he killed Rachel, although not for anything nearly as serious as murder. He was charged with felonious assault in Akron in 1993. He pleaded down to misdemeanor improper handling of a firearm in a motor vehicle and was given six months suspended jail time. The assault charge was dropped, even though Reese had been found with nunchucks in his car. It appears from the court records I could find that he was also slapped with a menacing charge and two counts of contempt of court in 1998. No details are available. But that was it. Reese wasn't convicted of anything major, and he managed to worm his way into Caitlin's life. She was just three years old when her mother was killed, and she moved in permanently with her father, Thomas. Reese moved in across the street, and they all hung out together. Caitlin told the Akron Beacon Journal, It's insane. It's literally insane that this dude lived across the street and had the nerve to be a part of our lives. He took me on my very first motorcycle ride. He lived right across the street. He was always coming around. I never suspected him to be anything but harmless. Caitlin told Cleveland.com, It's crazy that he was hiding in plain sight. He was at our house a lot. We had bonfires. He was always around. He had a hell of a nerve to come around knowing what he did. Caitlin said the last time she'd seen Reese was at the 2007 wedding of her stepbrother. Reese's son had been the groom's buddy. Of Reese, she said, he came to the wedding, sat with our family, and ate. This from People Magazine's interview with Caitlin. quote, I've known him forever. This is just crazy. My dad and my stepmom had cookouts, bonfires. He would just walk on over all the time. He was over at our house drinking beer around the fire like it didn't faze him. Caitlin said Reese was known in the Goodyear Heights neighborhood where she grew up as Hippie Man Dan. He was the guy walking around with this giant snake around his neck, she said. He would have us kids come over and watch him feed it. Reese once took her on a motorcycle ride around the block and on a sleigh ride. In 2002, he stopped by to offer condolences after she was in a car accident that killed her best friend. He said, I just want you to know that I have a video of you and your friend playing hopscotch in the street, she remembers. He was like, I'd really like for you to have that. Caitlin went on to tell People Magazine, I'm glad that's solved. I hope this brings hope to other people and they can find out what happened to their loved ones. The whole thing feels like a lifetime movie. You get smacked with an ending that doesn't seem real, end quote. Rachel's sister, Layla, also had the crazy story that she had worked alongside Reese at a printing company and had a trusted friendship with him. He had even trained her on some of the machines. She told the Akron Beacon Journal, quote, I have hugged this man before, I'm sure of it, and that freaks me out. Layla was skeeved by this friendly physical contact with Reese because she's certain that Reese knew who she was. Quote, I'm positive that he was aware that I was Rachel's younger sister from a fairly early point in our time working together. It did not phase him, He did not try to avoid me. He never seemed nervous. It was a complete coincidence that I ended up working there with him. Rachel's brother, Sam, talked to the Akron Beacon Journal as well. He said, It just doesn't seem real. It seems like fiction, like the plot of a movie, like somebody made this up. Rachel's family told the Akron Beacon Journal that they were in the dark as to what Reese's possible motive could have been to kill Rachel, dump her, set her on fire, walk away, and then ingratiate himself with her family for so many years. And that brings up some other things we don't know. What exactly happened on the night Rachel died? When you look at a map of where Reese was living and where Rachel was last seen in the Dairy Mart, now called the Five Corner Deli parking lot, the properties literally abut each other. Remember that Lisa said that when Rachel got out of her car that night, she said she knew someone on Dan Street. Detective Pashilich thinks she was referring to Reese. Her friends and family weren't aware that she knew anyone in the area, but Reese admitted that he and Rachel knew each other. It's likely that Rachel did know Reese through her ex Thomas, or she could have even possibly remembered Reese from growing up in the same neighborhood. Did Rachel knock on his door and ask him for a ride home? It was about five miles to her house on a cold night. She didn't want to walk. She may have seen a light on in his top floor apartment and wanted to avoid walking the long way home. Maybe he invited her in for a drink. Remember that Reese told his brother, Tim, that she was in the apartment and they got into a physical fight where he was strangling her. Did he come on to her and she rejected him and he lost it? Something happened that she did not want to happen and he savaged her. After the murder and rape, Reese panicked. He had to get rid of the body, but he lived in a city. There were people around everywhere. Maybe he even had his young son coming over to visit on Sunday. A dead body in the apartment was not an option he smuggled Rachel into the trunk of his car and drove to the semi-deserted industrial area on Weller. As a lifelong commercial printer by trade, he would have had toilene on him. He poured it on her, lit a match, and drove home to clean the blood from his apartment and clothing. What he did with Rachel's other earring, skirt, and boots is anyone's guess. Unfortunately, the investigators haven't been able to pinpoint what kind of car Reese was driving at the time, And there's no saying that the dark car seen by Donald C. on Weller was him. It's an urban area with lots of cars. It could have been anyone. Detective Bashilich and I discussed whether the Akron police missed the Reese lead back in 1991. They were never told his name, but should they have come up with it on their own in a canvas of the area where Rachel vanished? Well, remember that they believed that she had gotten into the car that pulled into the Dairy Mart parking lot. All signs pointed to that, and even Lisa assumed she had done so. And it's totally possible that the law enforcement canvassers did knock on the three apartment doors in that house next to the Dairy Mart. There's no saying that Reese would have acted suspicious, or that they even caught him at home. Detective Vashilich told Cleveland.com that he had been determined to solve Rachel's case given the excessive brutality of the crime. He said, quote, there's so much violence and different kinds of violence in terms of stabbing and set on fire and dumped in the street. I've gotten calls from the old timers who worked this case 29 years ago, and they remember it and they can't believe it's been solved and are so happy. Some have been retired for 25 years, but it's still in their minds and their hearts and their souls, end quote. As for Rachel's family, it seems an accurate characterization to say that they were all stunned at how Rachel's killer infiltrated their family and reveled in the secret he harbored. Now that they know about Reese's involvement, his friendship with the family seems psychologically abusive. Finding out that they had trusted him, included him, hugged him, lunched with him, all way worse than if he had been a stranger to them. And then there's this. At Rachel's funeral, several members of her family were given braided locks of her hair, and Daniel Reese requested that he be given one too, and wore it woven into his own hair. If you'll recall, Detective Veshajlich found a lock of hair when he searched Reese's home after his arrest. It hasn't been tested, but it could very well be Rachel's, a trophy he took from her own family and prized all these decades. Apparently, Rachel's family, distraught with grief, didn't notice the oddity of this request from a man they didn't realize Rachel knew, Or maybe they did notice and shrugged it off. But it goes to the brazen, depraved nature of Rachel Slayer that he not only killed her in such a horrific and brutal fashion, but he then sought to take her place in the hearts of her own family. I would imagine that most killers try to stay as far away as possible from their victims' families. Out of fear, their guilt will show on their faces. Reese was the opposite. Detective Pshilich told me that Reese was estranged from his own family, including his son, and he was closer to Rachel's family than his own. Whether he wanted to be close to them as some kind of sick penitence, or whether he got some sadistic pleasure out of the relationship, only Daniel Rees knows. After 29 years, Rachel Johnson's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you to Akron Police Detective James Pasilich and Advanced DNA's Amanda Reno for speaking with me about this case. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider Subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider Subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNAIDPodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Bettencourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Bettencourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.